now to speak back to you. And as a shepherd, as a pastor here, it's my privilege, Father, to bring various needs in our world, in our church, in our community, to you, the giver of all grace. But we present these requests to you because if we do not, they will eat away at us in the form of anxiety. But you've told us that where we feel anxious, if we would present our requests to you, that your peace would guard our hearts and minds. And so we bring these to you, asking for your peace and crying out for your intervention. Lord, I pray that you would bring an end to so much of the continued violence in Iraq and the unrest in Venezuela. You know, we have members with ties to that nation, and we pray, Father, that you would bring peace as only you can. Lord, I ask that you would raise up as we anticipate the presidential election season kicking into high gear soon. We pray you would raise up for us a president who fears the Lord. Lord, that's what we are asking for. We believe that whoever is elected ultimately reflects not the will of the American people, but the sovereign hand of God. So we trust you with the outcome, but we pray because you've told us to pray that you would raise up a God-fearing president. Lord, we pray for Fred and Don as they prepare to deploy to an unreached people group in Southeast Asia in less than two months. Lord, would you increase their faith, these missionaries that we have the privilege of supporting you know when it comes down to the wire and they, they're getting ready to step on that plane and leave behind decades of life here for decades of life on the mission field. That's hard. We pray you would deliver them from the attacks of the evil one that would in these remaining weeks seek to undermine their faith or sow seeds of fear. Would we pray for Will Chapman our brother, member here as he is preaching your word to young men at Henrico Juvenile Detention Center. Just a few minutes. Thank you for giving him your affection for those guys. And we pray that he would be unusually gifted this morning, anointed by your spirit to connect Jesus to all the hardship of real life. And that you would hold up Christ as a source of never-before-seen hope and promise and joy for those guys. Father, I pray for those on our office staff who are serving at a student conference this week. Would you give them physical stamina, insight into your work in the hearts of those young people, compassion, and courage. Father, I also pray for uh, the 20-somethings, the young adults among us, Lord, particularly those in that age group who, who, if they're honest, would say today, this point in their life, that they just, they feel restless. They feel uneasy, whether because they recently graduated or they're single and desiring a spouse, not sure where to live or work. Father, would you care for those young adults, the restless among us, and show them 
today, this week, this year. Show them what faithfulness in the present looks like when so much of the future is unknown. God, you know that's, that's not how we naturally work. We, we tend to find faithfulness easier when we see where we're going, but so often you say, follow me to a land that I will show you. And so we pray that you would help them to be faithful in the present while trusting you for the future. God, thank you for the way you've been providing abundantly beyond our wildest imaginations for a church when it comes to finances this year. You have been so, so good. We praise you for that. And Lord, I pray as I begin to preach your word from Ephesians 4 that you would fulfill this word and pour out in abundant measure new spiritual gifts on my brothers and sisters here. Lord, we pray for gifts of prophecy and evangelism and and teaching. Would you raise up new ministries and leaders? Would you give us a holy discontentment today through your word with, with living a comfortable, easy life that has little to nothing to do with building up the body of Christ? Lord, we don't want to be content with that kind of life. We want to be men and women who devote our life and our time and our possessions to building up what you have died for. So I pray today that the gifts among us would grow, that the glory of Christ would be exalted. In his name I pray. Amen. Amen. In case you didn't get there before Charlene began reading, you can open your Bible to Ephesians 4. Continuing our study from Paul's epistle. And I have to tell you, church, I've been waiting for this chapter for months. So when I was praying, this, this was, must have been back in, uh, you know, even early 2015, mid-2015, uh, there was a growing burden on my heart to preach through Ephesians. And it was chapter four more than anything else that kept drawing me back and making me excited, so... I feel rather inadequate to contain six months of waiting and passion into one sermon. These verses that Charlene read, we could, we could do a whole sermon series on this. But I'm grateful we're here. And to get us started, I want to make a brief but I think important observation about the culture we live in. I find it helpful to approach God's word Asking, Lord, would you help me to see where your scripture intersects with my world? Because that's when it gets personal. That's when we avoid the, the terrible mistake of compartmentalizing. Coming in on Sunday and putting our God hat on and giving our spiritual life a little TLC and then going back into the week and thinking and seeing and feeling in ways that are no different than the rest of the world. We have to see the intersection of God's word in our world. So let me say this. I think it goes without saying. Uh, We live in a culture that's, that's fixated on greatness. Captivated by it. We love great movie stars, great authors, great athletes, great businessmen, great musicians, great diplomats, There's a reason that such people can charge 
hundreds of dollars for a single concert ticket, right? Thousands of dollars for a book deal, or millions of dollars for a one-year contract where somebody throws them a ball and they catch it. (laughs) Not that I'm jealous. You know, and I think that's only the beginning with our infatuation because then when, you know, before they retire, we're, we're willing to fork over millions for them to tell us what products to buy. We are. I, I didn't know I should have bought that workout shirt until you wore it. And then when they retire, what do we do? Well, then we pay hundreds of thousands more in speaker fees to learn the secret of their greatness. So I think it goes without saying, from start to finish, that we're infatuated with greatness. We're fixated on it. And if you're a Christian, quite frankly, you shouldn't be surprised. Because if you know your Bible, then you know that we are hardwired for glory. Hardwired. We were created to be human, as it were is to have this this insatiable hunger for greatness. We we want to watch greatness. We want to learn from greatness. We want to achieve greatness ourselves. And that's not an accident. Not an accident. But to continue with the tech metaphor, all our back-end coding has been corrupted. So we thirst for greatness, but folks, we're looking for it in all the wrong places. All the wrong places. Where where do we look for it? We look for it in sex. We look for it in power. We look for it in, in money. All the while blind to the fact That true greatness, earth-shattering splendor, can only be found and known in the King of kings and Lord of lords. Psalm 145.3, great is who? The Lord, and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. He doesn't need an endorsement contract. Whereas the Apostle Paul says immediately before this, this passage that Charlene just read, Ephesians 4, there is one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I have yet to watch somebody on TV that can say that and speak the truth. Over all, through all, in all. So what does God do to reveal that kind of greatness? If he doesn't get endorsement contracts, if he doesn't have book signings, if he doesn't take in speaker fees, what what does he do to reveal that greatness? Well, here's what we have to remember, back to our culture, that greatness in this world is measured by how much you acquire, how much you obtain, how much money all the rest of us are willing to give you and watch you do your great thing. Well, God takes the opposite approach. Exact opposite approach. God displays his greatness not ultimately in what he demands, but in what he gives. For God so loved the world that he what? Gave. Gave. We serve a God who delights to display his greatness and reveal his supremacy 
first and foremost through the gifts he gives. That starts with Jesus Christ, his one and only son, who lived our life, died our death, rose from the grave to bring us home to God. But God's giving doesn't stop there doesn't stop there. After ascending into heaven, victorious over the power of sin and death, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, fully divine, he kept right on giving. Look at verse 7. Ephesians 4, 7. But grace was, what? Given to each one of us. According to the measure of Christ's gift. Ephesians 4, 11. And he gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. What's the point? Well, the point is that Jesus Christ displays his supremacy in the church by empowering his people to build up the church. We serve a great God. He displays his supremacy in this church by empowering us as his people to build up the church. In other words, Christ has a grace-giving ministry to us And we have a grace-giving ministry to one another. And if you combine those things, the end result is people see God as great. So, I want to make two points this morning. First, Christ has a grace-giving ministry to us. Grace-giving ministry to us. I take this from verses 7 through 10. Christ has a grace-giving ministry to us. So, if you remember, Chris taught us last week when he preached that Paul's singular burden in Ephesians 4 is to exhort the church to maintain the unity of the faith in the bond of peace. What does that mean? That means that God's on a mission in the world to unite all things in Christ. And the God who creates unity in Christ charges us as his people to display unity in Christ. He creates it. He charges us to display it. In other words, there's a certain way of doing life as a church that will speak the truth about Jesus. And there's another way of doing life as a church that will speak a lie about Jesus. And it has everything to do with whether or not we are preserving and attaining the unity of the faith. So how does God make sure that happens? What does he do? Well, he gives something to us, friends. Remember I said he displays his greatness by by giving. He gives something to every single follower of Christ, something that enables us, something that empowers us to build, strengthen, and grow and attain our corporate unity in Christ. He gives us something to get that done, and it's found in verse 7. But grace was given. Focus on that word. Grace was given. Okay, now, when we hear him say that, we have to be careful because grace can mean different things in different places in the Bible. So, in Ephesians 4, Paul's not talking primarily about the grace that makes us right with God. Grace for salvation. Okay, he's, he's primarily speaking here of a subsequent, subsequent, subsequent grace, a grace that follows the grace of salvation, through which we are empowered as those who've been saved for Christian ministry. 
So there's a grace that saves us, and then grace continues to overflow from the God who gives by empowering us. And it's that empowering grace, spiritual power to do good works God's prepared for us, that Paul's talking about here. Both are a gift, okay? Both are found only in Jesus Christ. But notice what Paul says about this particular grace, this this power for Christian ministry in verse 7. He says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. What does that mean? Well, it means that if you're a Christian, that God has given you particular spiritual abilities and gifts that he has not given to everybody else in this room. That's what it means. Within our unity, there's a diversity that's critical because the sort of grace God's given me is not necessarily identical to the sort of grace God's given you. But notice, please notice here that the diversity, the variation in the spiritual gifts and abilities God's given us doesn't reflect the fact that one of us is worth more or more valuable than somebody else or more important The differences, the fact that you and I as Christians don't all have the same spiritual gifts or abilities ultimately reflects the sovereign hand and wisdom of God. Not difference in value, not difference in worth, but a difference in God's sovereign design. And friends, I think that leaves us with a twofold challenge. First, God challenges us here to turn away from arrogant unbelief and toward humble faith. What do I mean by that? Why do I say that? Why I say it because I think far too many Christians look around at the spiritual gifts God's given their brothers and sisters and if they don't say it, they think it. It seems blindingly obvious to me that there's no way I'll ever be able to do everything they do. I can't talk to people the way they do. I can't explain the Bible the way they do. I can't give away the kind of money that they do. I can't pray like they do. I can't share the gospel like they do. I can't mentor people the way they do. I can't have people over to my home effortlessly the way they seem to do. I can't lead a small group like them. Translation, I guess I'll just throw some money in the basket and go home. Well, brother or sister, that might feel like humility. Number myself among the ungifted, below average. But God challenges you here in verse 7. That's really arrogant. That's actually arrogant because To believe that is to refuse to believe the word of God to you. God says to you, Christian, but grace was given to what? To each one of us. There's not an asterisk there with your name at the bottom of the footnote exception clause. (laughs) Grace was given to each one of us. We have to be so careful that we don't invest, invest more authority in how gifted we feel in the word of God that says he has given us gifts of grace. If you're a follower of Jesus, I don't care if you've been following him for one hour, then the Savior has given you grace 
in the form of spiritual gifts and abilities to minister to the people around you. Don't, don't confuse false humility with arrogance, okay? Here's the second challenge. If the first is to turn away from the arrogance that would discount that we have a gift to the faith that believes God when he says we do, here's the second challenge, okay? To each one he's given a gift of grace as he apportions. Here's the second challenge. To turn away from jealousy toward contentment. Be very careful here. Some of us don't just struggle with thinking that God hasn't given us spiritual gifts. Many of us do. But some of us also struggle with wanting the spiritual gifts God's given other people. But we don't talk about this, but I'm going to. (laughs) You know, we think things like, how come they got to sing that solo? Or how come they get to teach that class? Or or how come they get to preach that sermon or lead that group or do that ministry? I want to do that, and I think I could do a lot better job than they are, Lord. Friends, beware of jealousy. And whenever you sense those kinds of thoughts or, or feelings rising up within you, recognize that your battle isn't ultimately with man. It's with God. It's with God because God apportions spiritual gifts and opportunities to use those gifts as he wills, which quite often doesn't match what we will. His measure is perfect. His measure is wise. His measure doesn't always make sense to us, but his measure is always good. Always good. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Okay, now Paul transitions though. He's still talking about this ministry of grace that Christ has to us, our first point, but he transitions here to say, okay, how is it that Christ came to give spiritual gifts to each one of us? What caused that to go down? Well, the reason, Paul says, has everything to do with Christ's ascension. I was thinking about that this week. You know, we, we have a major holiday for his incarnation. It's called what? Christmas. Christmas. Yeah, major holiday for the incarnation of Christ. Christmas. Okay, we have a major holiday for the death of Christ. Good Friday. We have a major holiday for the resurrection of Christ. Easter Sunday. How many of you knew what Ascension Day was this year? Hmm. Yeah. I didn't. <laughs> We have an Ascension Day in the church calendar, and it always comes 39 days after Easter Sunday. It was the previous Thursday, Ascension Day. Now, the fact that we don't all stop and mark Ascension Day, or you don't hear a lot of sermons about the Ascension of Christ, can leave us thinking that the Ascension of Christ was sort of a PS on the gospel. You know, by the way, I'm out of (laughs) here. I mean, if I'm Jesus, I'd be ready to get out of here. But at the same time, we dare not take Christ's ascension simply because we don't get work off for it and think, well, it must not be that important. Because it's actually critical. It's critical. Look at verse 8. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 is the reason why verse 7 is true. What does Paul say? He's going to quote Old Testament here. Therefore, it says, Psalm 68, 18 says, 
When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. That's a quote, as I said, from Psalm 68, 18, which I want to read for you. This is originally Psalm 68, 18. If you flip your Bible back, here's what you'd find. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Psalm 68 is all about praising the Lord as a conquering king who delivers his people, protects his people, provides for his people, and the captives in verse 18 are enemies, God's enemies, that he takes in battle. Now, it's important to recognize, if you're not into military history, a little snapshot here, that in the ancient world, a conquering king or victor, when he returned from battle, he would have this crazy long procession behind him. And in the procession would be all the poor people that he conquered. And they weren't very well taken care of. And with, with those people would come all the gifts that the vanquished had been forced to surrender to the conqueror. It was called a, in, in Rome a triumph, a parade. The greater the host of captives, or more, the more numerous the gifts, the greater the victory. And so King David is taking that image and he's describing the Lord as a victorious conqueror who's leading captives and receiving gifts from the enemies he defeated in battle. And, and he ends Psalm 68, this song, by thanking God that he isn't just a God who, quote, received gifts among them, but at the end of Psalm 68, David praises God for this. The fact that he's a God who gives power and strength to his people. So what's the point? The point is what God wins through the strength of his might. He turns around and gives through the generosity of his heart. That's the point. And that, Paul says, whether King David saw this coming or not, that's exactly what happened in the ascension. What Jesus Christ won through the power of his might, he turned right back around and gave through the generosity of his heart. What does he say? The one who descended into the lower regions, the earth, incarnation, is the same one who ascended far above the heavens after his resurrection. Now, the ascension is important, critical, for at least two reasons. Two reasons, very quickly. Christ's ascension matters because his position above and beyond the entire universe assures us that there's no part of this created world where he doesn't say, I'm in charge. It assures us of that. If the universe consists of the earth and the heavens, notice what Paul says. Christ has ascended far above what? All the heavens. Okay? So if you're tracking with Paul, this world consists of the earth and the heavens. Paul says, guess where Christ is because he ascended? Above all the heavens. You can't get greater than that. You can't get more supreme than above all the heavens. His ascension matters because it assures us that he's sovereign over all things. Here's the second reason, okay? His ascension matters because it's the position of authority from which Christ pours out his Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, on his people. Okay, now follow here. In John 16, what does Jesus say? I tell you the truth. Surprise, surprise. It's to your advantage that I go away. I say, what? Yeah, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. Holy Spirit. But if I go, I will send him to you. 
That's exactly what happens on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, when the ascended Christ poured out fulfillment of all so much prophecy, especially in Joel. He poured out the Holy Spirit, his empowering presence into the hearts of his people. And it's the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, Paul says in in 1 Corinthians 12, that gives spiritual gifts to us in the form of grace or power for Christian ministry. So listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 12. There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Now, if you were observant, hope you were awake, you should have noticed a couple minutes ago that when I read Psalm 68, it was not identical to what Paul said in Ephesians 4. There was a difference. In Ephesians 4, Paul says what? He says, when he ascended on high, Christ, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Well, Psalm 68, 18 says that when he ascended on high, he received gifts from men. I found it. Paul made a mistake. You can't trust the Bible. See, he botched his Old Testament. Let's throw it all out. (laughs) No, (laughs) no, 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 no. Paul knew his Bible. He didn't make a mistake. Why, why, Why is it that that's our first assumption? He didn't make a mistake. He's simply bringing out a fuller sense of Psalm 68, 18 that is crystal clear in the context of the entire psalm. Remember I said at the end of the psalm, what does David thank God for? That he's a God who gives power and strength to his people. So what's Paul doing? He's helping us see that the gifts that Jesus Christ earns through the power of his might, he turns around and gives in the generosity of his heart. He receives in order to give. That's the point. So here's an illustration albeit a meager one, because how can we ever capture such wonderful things? But it's like if your older brother won the Super Bowl and then gave you your own ring, your own jersey, your own bonus check, your own long-term contract, not to mention your own invitation to the victory party. Okay, that's a meager picture, but it's headed in the right direction, of what it means to be a co-heir and conqueror with Christ. He displays his supremacy, remember I said, not just through the gifts he receives, but through the gifts he gives. Gifts he gives. And those gifts in this chapter take the form of spiritual power for Christian ministry. Okay, that's Christ's grace-giving ministry to us. Now, let's turn to consider our grace-giving ministry to one another. Christ has a grace-giving ministry to us. We have a grace-giving ministry to one another. Okay, and here's where Paul gets very, very practical. Let's read verse 11. See what he's saying to us here. Verse 11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers 
to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Here's the part I really, really care about. (laughs) Okay, I want to speak very clearly here, church, about what Paul is not saying and what Paul is saying. Paul is not saying that apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers are where it's at in the kingdom of God. He's not saying that. As if we all get invited to the victory party and only four of us get to sit at the VIP table. Not the case. That's not what he's saying. The list of gifts, ministry gifts in verse 11, is selective and illustrative examples. And if you look at the five gift lists, list of spiritual gifts in the New Testament, if you put them all together, you would notice that there's more than 20 different spiritual gifts. That is not Paul or God's way of saying that there's only 20 in God's toolbox. No, they're examples, they're illustrations. And from a human perspective, some of them look, you know, evidently spectacular. You know, when God gives somebody a gift of healing and they pray for someone and they're healed. I mean, that's, that's spectacular. But some of them look, appear to us, eminently ordinary. You know, a, a gift of administration or, or a gift of helps. I mean, how much more ordinary could that get? I mean, what's my spiritual gift? Why help? Well, it might appear ordinary. It might not look apostolic. <laughs> but they are all from the hand of the ascended Christ. Every one of them. He's not saying the fourfold gifts in Ephesians 4 are more valuable than the rest. But what he is saying, hear this, is that some gifts, these in particular, are more foundational than the others in the sense that if they're operating rightly, all the other spiritual gifts can operate rightly. That's what he is saying. So you know, think back to Ephesians 2.20 where Paul describes the church as that which is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. There's a sense in which the apostles and prophets were the first people that God used to make known the truth of the gospel in the early church. Now let me say very briefly here that that doesn't mean the fact that apostles and prophets had a foundational role that they ceased to function after the foundation was finished. And this is where I part ways with some gospel-believing, preaching brothers and sisters in the Lord who I dearly respect, but I do, with whom I disagree. Okay? All these gifts here, all four, are given to equip the saints for the work of ministry until when? Look very carefully at verse 13. They're given from Christ to equip the saints for ministry until what point in time? Until we reach the end of the first century. No, until the church is fairly solidly established. No, until the canon is closed. No, no, until we all attain to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. When is that happening? When are we going to be perfect as he is perfect? Somebody said, when we're dead, (laughs) praise be to God that that's what we look forward to. This life isn't the end, amen. But it's when the Lord returns, right? The entire church age. So just because two spiritual gifts, Paul says, were particularly critical in laying the foundation doesn't mean when they were done, they were like, see, I got my check, I'm out of here. No, 
No, they're, they're given throughout the entire age to continue to build and equip us for works of ministry. So, let me make a couple brief comments about each of these gifts. And I'm going to linger on the ones that I think get really misunderstood. And if you have questions, we'll talk later. Okay? So, what are these four gifts? Well, when it comes to apostles, again, we're talking about our, our grace-giving ministry to one another. Apostles are numbered among that. We have to remember there's two kinds. Two kinds. This is really important. The first kind is the sort we typically think about when we hear the word apostle. These were men who were, who were personally commissioned, personally commissioned by the risen Christ to proclaim the gospel and to write scripture for the sake of establishing and building the first local churches. That expression of the apostolic gift, as I said, that expression of the gift ceased to function with the close of the canon. Okay? There is no one today whom God has empowered an apostolic sense to say, thus saith the Lord, like Paul can say, thus saith the Lord. But there's a second kind of apostolic gift that we actually see in the New Testament. You don't hear about this much. Typically you think apostles. Well, the 12. Well, that's true. But there's a second expression in men like Barnabas or James or Apollos or, or Titus. These are men that are identified as apostles, but they don't carry the authority, the same authority as the original 12 or Paul. Yet they labored tirelessly to build, plant, and strengthen local churches with the gospel, especially among unreached people groups. So what does that mean? In our denomination, we don't have an apostolic office in the sense of men who can say what Paul says, I say. We don't. But we work to recognize men with apostolic gifts and deploy them in settings like the Sovereign Grace Leadership Team or regional leaders or church planting missionaries who go among an unreached people and start a whole new church planting movement. I mean, that's what I'm praying that Fred is able to do. Southeast Asia, and there, there's an apostolic gift, a, a gift of being able to make a foray into a new area with the gospel. We still see that today. Now, the gift of prophecy, this gift is mentioned in a variety of places in the New Testament, okay? And again, Paul never suggests that the gift would disappear after a couple decades. In fact, 1 Corinthians 14 he exhorts all the Christians in Corinth to what? Earnestly desire to prophesy. In light of the fact that a word of prophecy, when it is governed and submitted to the more authoritative word of God, that was very important. That's what keeps it from getting out of control because it's been abused. When, that's, when it's done humbly, it has tremendous power to speak to us Spontaneous impression from the Lord, speak to us for upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. Now, that doesn't mean that every word of true prophecy just has a happy ring to it or a feel-good ring to it, okay? Paul also says, 1 Corinthians 14, if all prophesy, listen, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare, God is really among you. I mean, I, this is why I thank God for, for those of you whom God has gifted, give you a spontaneous impression from the Lord and you'll come up to this ministry, Mike, share it with Will or Josh, another pastor, we talk and, and then you, you bring that humbly but faithfully 
to the church. And I believe the Lord would say this. We all listen to that, to that. We weigh that. We judge that with the authority of God's word. But I can't tell you how many times I've been in a meeting, meetings here, where a word of prophecy comes and there's a, a real sense, God, you are speaking specifically and clearly and personally to my heart right now. You know, you know when someone will say, you know, I believe that there are some here, for example, um, who are really discouraged with their parenting. And that the Lord would encourage you by saying this. You know, maybe they read a scripture, share God's heart for us as parents. That's priceless. You bet that's a gift. And you bet that equips me and equips us for the work of ministry as parents. The definition of an evangelist is clear enough from the word itself. What's an evangelist? Somebody who proclaims the evangelon or the gospel. Now, very careful here. This whole message is points of like, we've got to be so careful. Paul isn't saying that evangelism, sharing the gospel, is reserved for the few, the proud, and the brave. He's not. And there is something in our hearts, is there not, brother and sister? that would want to take this and say, thank God. You know, I know, I've always known I'm not an apostle. I've, I've never had a spontaneous impression of the Lord. I don't think I'm a prophet. And, you know, and every time I think about sharing Jesus with that guy at work, like, my heart just, so I must not be an evangelist. But, but you know, thank God they're out there. And I can rejoice when people are saved because the evangelist did his deal. no. No. Not the case. Don't take it out of context of Scripture. Paul doesn't limit evangelism to professionals or the unusually gifted. He says, 2 Corinthians 5, right, that you are, if you're a Christian, by the way, that's the only requirement. If you're a Christian, you are what? An ambassador for Christ. God doing what? Making his appeal through you. Through you. He doesn't limit evangelism to the professionals. And yet, there's a sense in which we recognize that God empowers some Christians in a unique way. I mean, you see this. To specifically take the gospel to those who have never heard and have never known. You see this. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean they're speaking in a football arena, though sometimes they do. We can think of names there. But it does mean that God will anoint men and women to lead the charge in equipping us to share Christ with those who don't know him. Okay? Now, gifts of shepherding and teaching. These are more familiar to us. But they are not one bit less essential than apostles or prophets. So the word for shepherd can also be translated pastor. And that's how we refer in this church to all the elders in our church. Every elder is a pastor. Every pastor is an elder. The gift of teaching, please hear this, is not limited to pastor elders. It's not. You don't see in Romans 12, another spiritual gift list, that the gift of teaching is exclusively reserved for pastor elders. Not the case. But every pastor elder must have an aptitude to teach. But let me make a very important point here because I'm one of those people, I believe, (laughs) pastor elder, called by God, we make a very important point about the grace-giving ministry I believe God has called me to fulfill and has not called me to fulfill. 
Okay, so please, please listen to this. It is common in our culture for people like me to be referred to as ministers. Now, if you were outside this church and you introduced me as a minister, I am not going to have a cow in public. (laughs) But if you're part of this church and you introduce me to someone or you come up and call me a minister, I am going to call you on the carpet. (laughs) And the reason is what? I am not a minister in a some crazy sense that you're not. Right? Implicit in that is so often, here comes the minister. I'm not the minister. You know, it's, that's how we think. But that's not what Paul's saying. What does he say my job is, church? My job is to equip you for what? The work of ministry. If you're a Christian, you are a minister of the gospel. Don't you forget that. It's the saints who do the work of ministry. It's my job to equip you, my job to help you, my job to teach you and pray for you, but it's your job to do the work. And I'm not going to do your work. (laughs) I'm not. And that means very practically, very practically that that especially as long as I'm the only full-time staff pastor here, there are going to be some forms of, quote, ministry that you might be used to pastors doing or expect pastors to do, or be waiting around hoping I will do, that I am simply not going to do. I'm not. And some of that is related to my limitations, the fact that I'm a husband and a father before I'm a pastor. But some of that is also related to to my conviction that I think in years past as a church, that we staffed ministry in situations where it would have been better to raise up volunteer ministry. I want to be very careful with that. I'm not saying, well, staff did everything, volunteers did nothing. No, volunteers did everything, and staff will do nothing. No. What I am saying is that I think God wants us as a church to lean a little bit away from staff, paid people doing ministry. And by the way, he may just be sovereign enough to use budget challenges to force our hand. And a little bit more toward all of us doing the work of ministry. I mean, when, when people have asked me, God, Matthew, what is God doing in your church these days? And I sort of step back and think over four or five years, without hesitation, I almost always say, God is teaching us that if a work of ministry is going to get done around here, we got to do it. We got to do it. We, we may not always have the ability to throw money at a need. But God will give you grace. We, we may not always be able to pay somebody to lead worship or pay somebody, hire somebody to lead parent-student ministry. But God will give grace and we've watched God give grace, have we not, among us to step in and do works of ministry whether we're getting a check for it or not. Okay? It's easier to hire people. It's easier to have a long org chart of ministers. But doing what is easy should never be the highest value in the church. Okay? Equipping volunteers is messy. It is. It's time-consuming. It's, it's risky. The outcomes are harder to control. There's times when you watch, you know, maybe somebody do something and you think, boy, it would have been nice to avoid that problem. But, but let me please hear me saying this. There is a glory in the mess. There's a dignity 
in the delay. There's an incredible beauty that glorifies God big time in watching him slowly take a brother or sister who never dreamed they would be doing that. And over time, with the help of all of us, God brings them to a point where that's exactly what they're doing. It takes longer. It's messier. You don't cut a check and it happens overnight. But I would argue that in more cases than not, it brings significantly more glory to God. Those of us who are on staff, those of us who the world looks at and says, you're a minister, we have a critical role. But it's not to do the work of ministry. It's to equip you to do it. And that means that if this church is going to grow, it's not going to primarily happen by hiring more staff. That may be helpful. But it will ultimately happen as each one of us goes before our king and says, Jesus, ascended Christ, show me the spiritual gifts that you are pouring into me through your Holy Spirit that you've called me to use to build up my church family. That, that means spiritual gifts that ministries that we do that add people into the church and ministry that we do that, that builds people up once they are in the church. Now, I want to conclude with this. I think it's easy to hear that. The guy up on stage is talking all about the spiritual gifts and ministries that the Holy Spirit pours out on each one of us. I'm sitting here thinking, I don't have a clue what the Lord has made me to do. I identify when you said earlier, I put money in the basket and I go home. And maybe it's not because you think, well, I'm just so ungifted. Maybe it's because you think, I've asked God and I, I just don't know. I mean, is he gonna like send me a postcard, you know? Gift of healing, well, shoot never saw that coming. I mean, how is this, how does this work, Williams, very practically? You know, I'm so grateful that when we get practical in our preaching, when it comes time to application, we don't leave God's word behind. It's not like this just tells us what's true and then it's up to the preacher to figure out how we're all going to live it. No, there's application in here. And so I want to conclude by looking at verses 12 to 13, where I think Paul really practically helps us identify and pursue the works of ministry that he's talking about here. Very practical. So, conclude with this. Three characteristics, very quickly, of ministry work in the church that's genuinely Christian. What's it look like? What, what, can, you, what can you use as sort of your assessment tool to go to God and say, Lord, where are you giving me spiritual gifts that you want to use to build up the body of Christ? Okay, first, Genuine Christian ministry is always, please hear this, it's always a church-centered work. Always. This is really important. What, what does Paul say here? Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers equip the saints for the work of ministry for what? For building up the body of Christ. That's the church. Why is this important? It means that exercising our spiritual gifts isn't about showing people how gifted we are. It's not. It's about using our God-given talents and abilities to build up the body of Christ. Not to build up your own image or reputation, which means, quite frankly, very practically, that discovering the work of ministry God's called you to pursue often starts with asking, Lord, where are there pressing needs in my local church? 
where they're pressing needs in my local church and then doing whatever you can to meet those needs. Now, that doesn't, that doesn't sound glamorous, does it? Where is there a need? What can I do to meet it? That doesn't sound, well, well I thought, like, isn't there some sort of, like, 100-question inventory I can take to figure this thing out? Well, there can be help in that, but, but I would suggest, I think Paul would suggest that because the goal is to build up the body of Christ, why don't you start by saying, Lord, where does my body need built up? And then joyfully and humbly do whatever the church needs in order for it to grow. It's a church-based work, church-centered work. Okay, here's the second practical characteristic, genuine Christian ministry. It's always a unifying work, church-centered and unifying. Notice Paul says that as we do the work of ministry, we work to to build up the body of Christ. We're, We're drawing in those on the outside, strengthening those on the inside. We do this until we what? Until we all attain, all, notice the word, the unity of the faith. That means that if you are insisting on using your spiritual gifts in a way that creates conflict or relational discord or draws more attention to your gift than it does to Christ, that you are not doing the work of ministry. You're doing a work of self-promotion. And you will know, friend, that you are exercising your spiritual gifts in the right way. When the result of your service, the result of your, your conversation, your teaching, your giving, your leading, your helping, is always a greater degree of unity and harmony in the church. That's the test. Because our growth as a church isn't about a select few of us, the Christian SEAL team, reaching our full potential in Christ while the rest of us write them checks and applaud. No. Growth as the church is about all of us together, rich and poor, black and white, young and old, new Christian, old Christian, all of us taking baby steps and growing together in maturity in Christ in a way that leaves nobody behind. Leaves no one behind. We don't leave the weak behind. We don't leave the immature behind. If we're going to grow, if we're going to attain the unity of the faith, Paul says it's got to be something we all do together. It's church-centered. It's unifying. Here's the last quality. It's always Christ-exalting. Always. No exceptions. Genuine Christian ministry labors with a singular goal in view. Helping the people around you grow in their knowledge of Jesus so that we might resemble Jesus in our thoughts and words and deeds. It's the mature manhood, which means that if you're doing the ministry God's called you to, you won't be convincing people to become more like you. You'll be helping people become more like him. And the work's not over until he returns to perfect his image in our hearts. Church, Jesus Christ has an amazing grace-giving ministry to us. And he has given us an incredible grace-giving ministry to one another. The reason is that he is on a mission to display his supremacy in the church by empowering us as his people to build up the church. That's That's what this is all about. And how we do that in every area of life is going to take Paul another three chapters to talk about. We'll stop here today, but I want to end by challenging you to do this before we sing. This week, go before the Lord in prayer and say, God, would you show me where you have called me to a church-centered, 
unifying, Christ-exalting work of ministry. And would you deliver me, Father, from becoming a spiritual consumer that thinks of church as something I attend instead of a body that by the grace of God I am responsible to build up. And then, Lord, would you show me specifically how I can do what you've made me to do to get that done. He's more interested in answering that prayer than you are in praying it. And so I want to end by praying it. Lord Jesus, I pray, I pray, Father, that you would help us as a church. We need your help because there are those of us who don't know where you've given us spiritual gifts. There are those of us who think we know but feel like we've been sitting on the bench for decades. There are those of us who have been seeking to labor in what we think they are but we're weary and tired. Lord, whatever group we're in, we need you right now through your Holy Spirit to pour out power, to pour out strength. May it take the form of new courage, may take the form of quiet contentment, may take the form of a new ambition to be used by you. Lord, whatever it is, we pray that you would make us a people who are relentless, untiring, unflagging in doing the work of ministry you've made us to do. I pray for grace for myself, for the other pastors here to more faithfully and fully and fruitfully equip these precious saints to do just that. In Jesus' name, amen.